0: As we move in, excuse me, as we move into this new year, we're moving into a new series of studies, both in our grace groups and on Sunday mornings. Um, And so I've been thinking a little bit about biographies. Biography, the word is made up of two Greek words, bio, which is life, and graph, which is writing. And so a biography is the story of somebody's life. It's the writing down of a record of somebody's life, and libraries are filled with biographies. They're interesting reading, aren't they? Uh, Sometimes you get a book for Christmas. It's a story of somebody's life, and it's interesting to read that story, what perhaps made them, where they came from, and so on. Um, One of the things that always intrigues me is how many different biographies there are with different important people in this world. Um, Ronald Reagan was President of the United States, and as you look through the listing of um, books on his life, you'll find that there are at least 17 biographies of Ronald Reagan, written by different people. If you go to Wikipedia, there's a list of all of them, these 17 biographies. In addition to that, there are six books that are written about him and his governmental policies that are kind of like biographies and there's another 10 of them that are written that, um, that describe him by people who were parts uh, individuals on his staff. So with one person there are 35 or more biographies and then there's a list of at least that many more books about Ronald Reagan. What strikes me is that with the greatest person that ever lived, out of all of the 6,000 years of world history, the greatest person who ever lives, there are four short biographies. And a total, if you count them up in most Bibles, a total of 111 pages. Now, I don't know any student who wouldn't love having a textbook that's only 111 pages long. In all the years of teaching and so forth. That was wonderful if you had a textbook that short. What we're gonna do is we're gonna to look today at the biographies of Jesus. I call it the four portraits. And as part of our scripture reading for today, I would like us to read the introduction to one of those biographies. It's the Gospel of John that we're gonna read and work through together this spring. So if you'll stand and read with me. One more time, stand please. And I will read the white print if you'll respond with the yellow as we read the first 14 verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of man of flesh rather nor of the will of man but of god and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth thank you and please be seated the four portraits of jesus as you begin the new testament And if you have started reading through the scriptures again this year, you know that with the plan that most of us are using, we read two chapters in the Old Testament and one in the New. So you may have already read the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the Gospel of the kingdom. It presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. It's written by a man who was a tax collector, a Jewish man who was part of the government, he was part of the system, part of the world. In his day, he worked at the IRS office. And so that was not somebody that you would normally think of being chosen by Jesus to be a disciple. It says Jesus saw Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, so Jesus walked right into the IRS office. I don't know if he had some kind of a beef with them or not. Uh, I assume not. But he saw Matthew there as he's working, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed Jesus. And then we saw that there were many tax collectors that Matthew influenced and brought to Jesus. So Matthew is a gospel written by someone who was part of the Of the governmental system. He understood government records. He understood how things worked. He understood his way around government offices and so forth. And the thesis of the Gospel of Matthew is that the rejection of the messianic king and his kingdom prompts the introduction of a mystery kingdom. And so Matthew breaks into two major sections, or is organized into two major sections. The first one is the presentation and the rejection of the kingdom. And so what you have in the first four sections of the gospel are the presentation of the king. So we have the story about Jesus being born and the wise men coming, looking for the one who was the king of the Jews. And then you have the preaching of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, and then the proof of the kingdom as Jesus performs various miracles to demonstrate that he indeed was a king, that he had authority over this realm and over this life. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we have encapsulated the rejection of the king and the kingdom. John the Baptist sends and says, are you the one or should we look for someone else? And the cities, Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Capernaum, If the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah that were done in you, they would have repented ages ago. And so he points out how the various villages where Jesus ministered the most basically rejected him. And then chapter 12 is all full of the stories of the religious leaders who reject him. And so starting in chapter 13, Jesus introduces the mystery form of the kingdom. So you have these parables about a sower and about the wheat and the tares and the pearl of great price and so forth. And Jesus says to his disciples, it's given to you to know about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And then he provides for this um, training of the disciples in preparation for that kingdom. And then you get down to chapters 24 and 25 and there's a Little hiatus there as Jesus talks about how the king will come and the kingdom will come in the future, but for right now, that's not going to happen. And then, as in all of the gospels, there is the story of Jesus' suffering and his death as we conclude that. So, the main verse as I see it in the book of Matthew is this statement that Jesus makes, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. And so he teaches in parables and he instructs his disciples, still reaching out to the nation, but understanding that the nation has largely rejected him. And so Matthew writes this gospel. Uh, This is a couple of artist renderings of what Matthew might have looked like. Probably by 50 A.D. And the reason for that is because that would be the first question that the people of the church would have. Remember, the first uh, about seven or eight years, the church was almost exclusively Jewish. Uh, As you read through the Gospels, you find that the day of Pentecost takes place in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people are being... Uh, brought to faith in Jesus and if you're if you're a Jewish person and you live in Jerusalem or you live somewhere in Judea or even if you live in Galilee and you want to share your love for Jesus with people and you say to them Jesus is the Messiah what are they going to say they're going to right away say if Jesus is the Messiah If Jesus is Messiah, where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? That would be the question that these Jewish people would have. And so Matthew is writing to answer that question. He's writing to explain that the kingdom was put on hold for a mystery form of the kingdom. And, that, and then you have this apologetic, which Jewish people are able to share with people around them. So Matthew is the first gospel written. It's the first gospel in our, in our New Testament. And so as we read the story of Jesus, the first story that we read is about the king of the Jews. Mark's gospel is the gospel of the servant. It's a whole different picture. When you start the Gospel of of Mark, you realize right away that there's something different because there is no birth record. There's no indication of where Jesus came from. It just simply says, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it jumps right in to his ministry. Mark himself was a servant. As God chose Matthew... To write the book of Matthew, a, a man who was familiar with the political realm and the system, Mark was a servant. We read in Acts chapter 13 that Mark accompanied Paul, or Saul as he called at that point, and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And it says they had Mark, John Mark, as their helper. The word helper is the word under rower. It's the word assistant. And so John Mark was a helper and assistant to Saul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey, but he bailed on them, didn't he? If you remember the story, you remember that later on it says that when they came to Pamphylia, that John left them and went to Jerusalem. He went home. Um, It doesn't tell us why, but we have presumed that he got homesick. Now, the reason we presume that he got homesick is because the Apostle Paul does not want to take Mark on the second missionary journey when they go. Barnabas wants to take him. You'll remember perhaps in Acts chapter 15 that there's a dispute that breaks out between these two choice servants of the Lord. And Barnabas says, we're taking him. And Paul says, we're not taking him. And Barnabas says, we're taking him. And the, the, the dispute was so strong that they split up and formed two teams. And Barnabas took Mark with him. And so you have this record of Mark's activity in the New Testament. Uh, The second opportunity is when he goes with uh, Barnabas. On Barnabas' second missionary journey, Paul goes in the opposite direction. And then you have him recognized by the Apostle Paul later. Paul writes these words in Colossians chapter 4. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Also, Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul's had a change of heart by this point about, uh, about Mark. And then he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, near the end of his life, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. And Mark himself makes then... significant contribution because he writes this second gospel the gospel of Jesus and it's the gospel about the servant the first gospel presents Jesus as king second gospel presents him as a servant and the key verse in in Mark's gospel is Mark chapter 10 verse 45 where he writes for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so as I organize or as I look at the structure of the book of Mark, it seems to me it looks basically like this, that in the first ten chapters you have Jesus coming as a servant. <clears throat> now, he's not the servant of the people. He is the servant to the people he is god's servant to the nation of israel and so he reminds them again and again i am here to serve you but i'm really serving my father in heaven and every so often there's conflict in that service isn't there and so jesus has to clarify that he is there to serve his father and to be, as a result of that, the servant to the people. And then in chapter 11 through 16, we have Jesus coming to save. And so we have the story of the final week of his life. Chapter 11 starts with the, with the triumphal entry of Jesus, and so we have him um, giving up his life. So Matthew is the gospel of the king. Mark is the gospel of the uh, of the servant. And I'll pause here for just a second because a lot of people argue when you read the books and when you read the study Bibles and so forth, a lot of people argue that Mark had to be the first gospel and had to be written first. And the primary reason for that is that Mark is shorter than Matthew and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels Synoptic means they have very similar structure, the outline and the flow of the story, and many of the stories that are included are the same. And so the argument is, since Matthew is only is 31 pages long, and Mark is only 21 pages long, it's only two-thirds the length of Matthew, that Mark had to come first. The argument goes like this. If 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 Matthew was first, Mark would have been a lot longer than it is because if Mark is using Matthew's material, then it's going to be expanded. And so the argument is Mark is the shortest, therefore it has to be first, then Matthew and then Luke. But I put these two books up on the screen. These are books both of whom I had to purchase when I was in seminary, each one written by one of my seminary professors. John Walvard on the, on the right-hand side and Charles Ryrie on the left. And when you look at the two books, what you find is that Dr. Walward's book is 280 pages long, Dr. Ryrie's book is 210 pages long. Same subject, nearly the same outline when you read it, but you find that Dr. Walvert's book was written in 1954 and Dr. Ryrie's book was written in 1965, 11 years later. So he deliberately wrote a shorter book because that was his gift. That was his way of doing things. He had a different purpose than Dr. Walvoord had. And while I appreciated both of them, <clears throat> I sort of leaned toward Dr. Ryrie. I like the shorter books. And so Mark is like that. It's written later, but the fact that it's written later <clears throat> does not mean that it, to, that it has to be longer. Instead, Mark's purpose is what determined the length of the book. So, Mark is the gospel of the servant. Matthew is the gospel of the king. That brings us to Luke. Luke is the gospel that investigates the man, the humanity of Jesus. And as Luke writes his gospel, the focus is on the human interest stories. Now, are there human interest stories in the other two gospels? Yes, because you are writing about the same person And some of the same events are significant, but they're used in a different way. And so when Luke writes, Luke writes talking about the man, Jesus. Luke tells us his purpose. It's very interesting. It's nice to have somebody, when they write a book, tell you exactly why they're writing the book right up front, right? He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us just as they were handed down to them by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So this tells us that if there's a question about order of events, you normally want to go with Luke's order. Because Luke says, I'm writing these things out in consecutive order. And Luke says, I have done an investigative study. I have talked to all of the eyewitnesses that I could. And I'm writing the story of this man, Jesus, from this perspective. Now, some of you will know that Luke was what? A doctor, right? He also is the only Gentile, as far as we know, who had a part in writing the Scriptures, and so Luke comes at it from a doctor. Now he also adds at the beginning of the Book of Acts, "The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all the things that Jesus began to to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after uh, to heaven." after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he tells us about the two books that he wrote. It's very interesting that Luke is one of the longest writers of the New Testament. He's written more than any of the other writers in terms of the number of pages and so forth. And um, it's just fascinating when you study this kind of thing. Now, Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. You don't have to read all of this, but I put the passage up there, it's in, from Acts chapter 16 where he says, we sought to go to Macedonia, though God had called us to preach to them. We went a straight course and so forth. And he talks about the we of the travel. And so Luke, who's writing the gospel, all of a sudden in this passage says, we went, the Apostle Paul and Silas and me, Luke. And so they're traveling together. And what we find is that Luke traveled with the apostle Paul, that he's a medical doctor, uh, that he is an associate of Paul, and we have several passages where we see him involved in the book of Acts, and that when Paul left the city of Philippi, Luke stayed behind. And it's very possible that Luke is from Philippi. And so when the church was founded there, the story of the Philippian jailer and everything, Luke stays behind, and he becomes the one who sort of um, mentors that group of believers and forms them into a church. And, And Paul writes to the Philippians, and he says to them, more than once, you sent to me support to help. And so Luke, as a medical doctor, is someone who is very supportive of the Apostle Paul. And he is with Paul during, then, the imprisonments that are recorded for us in the Scriptures. So, the Gospel of Luke appears to me to be written at about 60 A.D. And the reason I say that is because he tells us that he interviewed all of the eyewitnesses. And we know that he was with the Apostle Paul when Paul was imprisoned at Caesarea Philippi, at Caesarea, not Caesarea Philippi, at Caesarea for two years. And during that time, Paul's in jail. He cannot come and go, but Luke can come and go. And so Luke makes the trip back and forth from Caesarea to Galilee, from Caesarea to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Galilee. And he's constantly interviewing the eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. He might have interviewed Mary he might have interviewed and probably did interview the brothers of Jesus and so forth. And so then he writes his gospel. The study Bible, one of them says this about Luke's gospel. It says that Luke's gospel is universally recognized uh, or provides a universal recognition of the Gentiles as well as the Jews in God's plan. The emphasis is on prayer. There are more passages in the gospel of Luke that portray Jesus praying than any other gospel. That's because of the emphasis on his humanity. Remember the story about Jesus praying in the garden in great agony with, with, with perspiration like drops of blood. That's in Luke's gospel. Luke is a medical doctor. He's interested in the agony and the difficulty and the hardship that Jesus went through. There's joy at the announcement of the good news. There's a special concern for the role of women. In Luke chapter 8, we learn that there was a group of ladies who were a part of the entourage that often traveled with Jesus and helped to finance his ministry. And so it's appropriate, ladies, for you to give healthy amounts of money to the church. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this This is Luke's take on it. He's, he's constantly telling us things about the ladies who were around the ministry of Jesus. Again, he's a medical doctor. He's interested in the human side of the story. There's a special interest to the poor. There's a concern for sinners. There's a stress on the family circles and the emphasis on the Son of Man. So, Luke's gospel, uh, seems to me, fits into four sections, four major sections First, the birth of the God-man. It's Luke who tells us that, about the details of the birth. It's Luke who gives us the stories of Christmas that we love so much. As we read about the shepherds, as we read about Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, and, and, and we read about them taking Jesus to the temple to dedicate him and have him circumcised and all those kinds of things. Um, then we have the ministry of the God-man. And the emphasis in Luke is on the man side of the God-man. So it's the birth of the God-man. It's the ministry of the God-man. It's the discipling of the God-man. And then the passion and resurrection of the God-man as well. That leads us to John's Gospel. And it's John's Gospel we're going to look at this spring. And so as you think about John's Gospel... Everybody basically agrees that John's gospel is written last, somewhere around 90 A.D. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Rather than naming himself, when he refers to himself in the gospels, he refers to himself as the the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there's a special bond between Jesus and John. Many think that he is probably the youngest of all of the apostles. And it appears that he was a first cousin to Jesus. And so he's a younger cousin. You know what family relationships are like, how often a young cousin looks up to an older cousin. And that was part of the relationship between Jesus and John. So when you read John's Gospel this spring, do so from the perspective of this individual who is writing about him. The gospel is organized around seven signs. It starts with the turning of the water to wine, for which Jesus is famous, and ends with the sign of the resurrection. And the purpose of John is that you might, by believing in Jesus, have life in his name. It began with Jesus issuing a call to James and John. He said to them as they were working in their father's boat, "Um, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And uh, this is one uh, rendering of James and John from a film that was produced about them. We're going to talk more about John next week as we look at the man himself who wrote this particular book. John's gospel begins, as we read this morning, with the word becoming flesh. In the Gospel of Matthew, where is he who is born king of the Jews? In the Gospel of Luke, shepherds are sent to a stable to view the lowly birth of Jesus. In John's Gospel, John's birth story is this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here's a breakdown, as I see it, of of the Gospel of John. We have a prologue. It's a prologue about God becoming flesh. And then we have the public ministry of the God-man with an emphasis on the God side. Several times we read, like in John chapter 5, where it says that the Pharisees were really upset with Jesus because he was making himself out to be equal with God. And so we find that happening in his public ministry. And then the private ministry, also called the upper room ministry, in John chapter 13 to 17 and then finally the passion uh, of the God-man. This is the key verse in John. He tells us why he wrote the book. He says there are many other signs which Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John's purpose. So he tells us that Jesus is the bread of life. He tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. He tells us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He tells us that Jesus is the true vine and that we have to be in right relationship to him. And then he says, and I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. And that's indeed what has happened, isn't it? The whole world is wrapped around the life of Jesus. It's all B.C. and A.D. It's all about Jesus. What's really interesting is that there's only 110 pages in four short portraits about the most important person who ever lived when there are thousands of pages about other people whose lives are significant but don't begin to compare to Jesus. God just has a way, doesn't he, of presenting things simply, of making things that are very difficult, relatively easy to grasp, and yet it's always a little bit beyond us. It's always more than we can quite wrap our minds around. Because we're talking about Jesus here. And then the gospel concludes when Thomas says, My Lord and my God. So, as we look at these four gospels, Matthew is the gospel of the king. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Mark is the gospel of the servant. The son of man came to serve. Luke is the gospel of humanity. And so we see a baby lying in a manger. And John is the gospel of the son of God the word became flesh. The eternal word became flesh. But it's not enough to know about Jesus, is it? It's not enough to just read a biography. We have to go beyond that. There has to be a relationship with him. John chapter 3, Jesus himself said, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus As we read in verse 12, to them he gives the right to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name, who are born again, not of the flesh, not of the will, but who are born of God. And so this morning, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You need to make Jesus your Savior personally. All of those other biographies, the libraries are full of them, are very interesting and sometimes enlightening, and sometimes we can learn great things. But these four biographies will change your life. These four biographies bring to you the Son of God in four different capacities designed to influence and affect our lives. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through his Son, Jesus Christ.